The Immortal Game is a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year and is available in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com. Hi, this is Mark, jumping in with a quick content warning. This episode is tagged on iTunes and other podcast platforms as containing explicit material. So do be careful when and where you listen to it. Thank you. Chapter 25 Home Movies For the second day in a row, Stockwell interrupted my morning routine this time by waking me up. The phone rang angrily. I fumbled the receiver off the prong and laid the cool plastic against my cheek, not raising my head from the pillow. Yeah, I grunted. How are the Pop-Tarts this morning? asked Stockwell in a too loud voice. He sounded like a guy who'd had a full night's rest, a nice breakfast, and a kiss goodbye from his wife. I hated him. I haven't gotten that far. Tisk tisk. I hope I didn't wake you up. No, it's like Neil Young says, Rustin Reardon, we never sleep. Well, I called you to thank you for telling me about McCullough. You beat the SFPD by six hours, and the San Francisco Chronicle by four. Guess I'm getting good at finding dead bodies. The College of Mortuary Sciences ought to follow me around. Maybe they should. But Terry McCullough wasn't actually dead when you found her. No, she wasn't. That just shows the depth of my talent. I can find them even before they go. I suppose you can at that. He paused. Well, be seeing you. I'd tell you to keep your nose clean, but there ain't a big enough handkerchief. Wait, I said. That's it? What else would there be? Roland Teller's murder ODs in a Tenderloin Hotel. That's the Chronicle headline this morning. You believe that? What about all your complicated theories from yesterday? What you said. Just complicated theories. It wasn't Haystrip's fingerprint on the photograph in Terry McCullough's apartment. We ran it. I sat up in bed, putting my feet on the cold hardwood floor. Doesn't anyone care about the identity of the guy who phoned me last night? That seems like a pretty big loose end to tie up before declaring victory. Stockwell grunted. I don't think that's such a big mystery, do you? Who else would know where Terry McCullough is hiding out besides Chuck Haystrop, his friend Dale? If you hadn't gone over to his car lot yesterday and muddied the waters before I could talk to him, he might even have told us where she was in time to save her. He admits he called me then? Yeah, the San Francisco cops sweated it out of him. He says he went over to confront her about Haystrip's suicide and found her on the bed. He didn't want to be left holding the bag, but he didn't want to see her get away or die, so he passed the buck to you. How do you know he didn't pump her full of dope himself? He might have killed her because of Haystrip. Now who's making with the complicated theories, Reardon? A guy like that would have killed her with his bare hands, or shot or knifed her. He wouldn't mess around with something vague and inexact like a drug overdose. And even if he had... He wouldn't have called you. He would have just let her die in a hotel by herself. She probably wouldn't have been found for a week. 
if you say so. Yeah, I do. I've been given the word from high to close this case, and I'm more than happy to. You should be happy too. You've been bending the rules like cooked spaghetti. Nothing I can nail you for exactly, but it was only a matter of time. In fact, it wouldn't surprise me if you walked off with more evidence at that hotel. Hang it up now, Reardon. It's time. This is the best outcome you could hope for. I thought you called to thank me, not lecture me. Stockwell growled into the phone. I knew there wasn't any point in telling you to keep your nose clean. Call me when you're humping for bail. I'll chip in a quarter. He slammed down the phone. I hung up at Mayan and fell back in bed. Staring at the ceiling, I thought about all the things I should have done differently. It was hard to count that high. Then I thought about the things that were left. That was a much shorter list. I needed Duckworth's help again to see if Bishop's software was on the PCMICA card I had taken from the hotel. If the source code was there, I would return it to Bishop to try to dig myself out of that hole. If not, I didn't see any point in giving it to the cops. It would just make more trouble for me, especially after Stockwell's irksome comments on the topic of stolen evidence. The last thing I could think to do was look up Ronan O'Grady and find out more about Terry McCullough's death. I reached into the nightstand drawer and fished out a pack of desiccated cigarettes. I lit one and took a pull. The old tobacco burned like a fuse. I watched as the smoke from the butt curled and eddied up to the ceiling fixture. Thinking about Terry McCullough reminded me that there was an item rattling around in my trunk that I'd never taken time to fully review. The S&M tape of her and Bishop. I decided I would add that to the list of TBDs. It seemed unlikely that anything on the tape would bear on the case, but in spite of Stockwell's exhortations, I wasn't ready to hang it up entirely. Besides, it'd be stupid not to give the tape a quick run-through after taking the trouble to nick it from the East Palo Alto apartment. I was pulled sharply out of my ruminations by the cigarette. It had already burned down to my fingers. I cursed and stubbed it out violently like I was mashing a scorpion. I cleaned up and got dressed and then walked over to Postworth to have a late breakfast while I read the paper. The afternoon examiner was already out, but it hadn't seen fit to alter the chronicle headline Stockwell dictated to me in any significant way. Teller murder suspect found dead. Heroin overdose in Tenderloin was how it read. The reporting on Terry's discovery was pretty thin. Dale Pace was not mentioned at all, and I was referred to only as a San Francisco private detective. Much more substantive was the discussion of the significance to the Teller case. The SFPD spokesperson made it clear that the department considered the case to be closed and found plenty of juicy credit to base themselves in. Poor old Stockwell only got his name in print one time, and that was in a quote thanking the members of cooperating forces. It sounded like the winning pitcher thanking the bat boy. On my way home, I snagged the videotape from the galaxy's trunk. It was a little worse for wear. One corner of the plastic housing had chipped off, but I figured it would still play. At the apartment, I got the tape in my VCR without problem and reround it to the beginning. I didn't want to miss the Sako opening scene. The tape began as I remembered, in the dungeon with Bishop and Fetters on a wooden wheel and Terry flailing away at his butt with a birch rod. He made every bit as much noise as before, but with the benefit of a full playthrough, I also got to hear Terry's contributions. In a continuing patter, she barked a series of orders, observations, and questions at him like a perverted drill sergeant. You like this, don't you, Edwin, she said. You need this. You can get hard now, Edwin. 
I give you permission. Only I decide what you do with your cock. It's mine. Relax your cheeks. Give yourself up to the rod. And so on. It didn't take very much of this to send me scrambling for the remote and the fast-forward button. I thumbed it down and watched as McCullough whipped Bishop's butt in herky-jerky movements like a madwoman. In a minute or so, the scene changed abruptly. I lifted my thumb. Bishop and McCullough were still in the dungeon, and Terry was wearing the same thing. Black leather corset, black boots, and the satisfied expression of a woman who enjoys her work. Bishop, however, had a whole new look. He was standing upright, firmly shackled to the concrete wall by wrists and ankles. A cushion support at kidney height was visible on either side of his hips. The apparent goal of this was to thrust his pelvis forward, bending him off the wall like a sail in the wind. But that was just the half of it. Wrapped tight around his scrotum was a black leather strap. Attached to that was a black iron chain, and dangling from the chain was a metal ball the size of a shot put. I pressed my knees together and grimaced in sympathetic pain. In spite of the medieval torture, or perhaps because of it, Bishop had an erection. I'm not one to usually comment on the physical endowments of others, but if Bishop was an Oscar Mayer wiener, he would definitely be a cocktail frank. Terry stood in front of him, batting his dick around with crimson-clawed hands the way a cat bats an injured mouse. She said, Now your little soldier is standing at attention, but only because I ordered it. Isn't that right, Edwin? Bishop looked over at her. Yes, mistress, he answered miserably. McCullough grabbed a tuft of Bishop's underarm hair and yanked it. He yelped like a kicked dog. Answer more promptly and keep your eyes down. She cuffed Bishop's dick particularly hard. I think he's ready for some action. Let's see, what will it be? She reached between her legs and undid several snaps. The bottom half of her costume fell away, leaving her naked from the hips down. Her pubic hair was trimmed in a narrow stripe. A frontal assault, she said, and rubbed herself suggestively. She passed the hand that had been between her legs under Bishop's nose and then licked her fingers. Bishop whimpered. A sneak attack, she continued. She stood with her back to Bishop and bent over, spreading the cheeks of her ass. Bishop's eyes grew wide behind his glasses. Or an amphibious landing. She turned to face Bishop and made exaggerating licking motions inches from his face. Yes, she said, we'll do the amphibious landing. Let's just hope your little pecker doesn't get swallowed in the stormy seas. She kneeled in front of Bishop and took hold of the chain between his legs. Tugging down hard on it, she pulled the head of his cock to the level of her mouth. Bishop groaned and scrunched his eyes tight. She teased him for a while with her tongue, then took him all the way into her mouth. Things finally seemed to be going well for Bishop. Terry's head went up and down rapidly while he made huffing noises in response. Then she bit him. Her head stopped mid-stroke, her jaws clenched, and suddenly Bishop screamed like he hadn't screamed before. For a horrible moment, I had thought she'd taken his penis clean off. I fingered my earlobe where McCullough had bitten me and thought, there but for the grace of God. I saw I was wrong, however, when she stood up smiling. Bishop's dick was still firmly attached, but there was blood dripping from it in fat drops that fell lazily to the floor. Terry's lips glistened with it. She leaned over and kissed Bishop hard on the mouth, marking him too. You've got to expect a few casualties in any action, don't you, Edwin, she said. She didn't wait for a reply, 
but took her left leg under the knee and swung her foot up to the wall, planting her spike heel just under Bishop's arm. Then she reached for his cock and slid on top of it. Her ass was a thing to behold as she moved up and down with the ponderous rhythm of a cricket pump. The metal weight oscillated between their legs in counterpoint, the amplitude of its swing increasing until it pounded the concrete wall like a wrecking ball. Bishop at first seemed stunned by this frontal assault, but very quickly adapted to the new state of affairs. Once again, he began to make noises of obvious pleasure. They rose in frequency and volume in sync with the swinging ball. As things reached a crescendo, Terry commanded, Beg for it, Edwin. Beg me to let you come. Like the obedient dog, Bishop repeated, Please, mistress, may I come? Please, mistress, may I come? Until he was overtaken by orgasm. At the end of it, he hung limp from the chains with his chin on his chest and his hair pasted with sweat to his forehead. The ball drifted back and forth like a metronome left running after the song has finished. Terry stepped off Bishop with the casual ease of an expert horsewoman. She took hold of his right nipple and tugged on it. She said, Next time you will pleasure me, you miserable slave. Then the screen went blank. I hit the stop button on the remote control. I ejected the tape from the VCR and walked it out to the apartment corridor where there was an opening for a garbage chute that emptied into the dumpster below. I broke the tape in two on the lip of the chute and dropped both pieces down without ceremony. I went back to the apartment. I felt like I needed another shower, but I settled for a double bourbon. You have been listening to The Immortal Game, a San Francisco Chronicle Book of the Year. Find it in ebook and trade paperback wherever books are sold. In this podcast, it's read by author Mark Coggins. Learn more about Mark and his other novels at markcoggins.com.